save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. This past week, Trump pardoned Arizona's criminal sheriff, Joe Arpaio, Trump says that wasn't any worse than Bill Clinton pardoning a convicted campaign donor, Mark Rich, or Obama pardoning Chelsea Manning. Erwin Chemerinsky disagrees. He's the new dean of the Berkeley Law School, and he'll explain why later in the show. Plus, if you wanted to discredit the idea that Russians hacked the DNC to help Donald Trump, you'd need a counter theory, right? Bob Dreyfus will look at the leading Republican counter theory and how it crashed and burned. First up, it's still raining in Houston. We're recording this podcast on Tuesday afternoon when parts of Houston have been hit by more than four feet of rain. For a live report from Houston, we turn to Roan Carey. He's managing editor at The Nation, and he's been following the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. Hi, Roan. Hi, John. Good to talk to you. It's now Tuesday afternoon in Houston. Where are you at this hour? Uh, tell us what you've seen and what's been happening in your life for the last few days. Well, right now I'm trapped in a hotel in West Houston. For those who know Houston, it's on the Katy Freeway, fairly close to the 610 loop. I was here to visit family. I have a lot of extended family who lives in Houston, and I'd rather stupidly flew down not knowing how bad the storm was going to be and subsequently got trapped here. And basically what I've been doing is very nervously talking to sisters, brothers, nephews, nieces, hoping that they would not be trapped in the floodwaters, that they would not have to escape to second, third floors or have to be rescued by boats as so many hundreds, I suppose thousands by now have been thousands. Yes, absolutely. So that's what we've been doing. I have a sister who lives very close to Buffalo Bayou, and the bayou rose to shocking levels. I mean, I have walked out on that bayou, and ordinarily it's a very desultory little meandering stream surrounded by beautiful grassland, and the whole thing has just been turned into this enormous lake, and it now is, it was lapping up against the fence of her neighborhood. The streets were wet, and really just about two feet from flooding all the homes there, Everyone's been watching the news, so so your listeners know that enormous parts of Houston have been catastrophically flooded. There's really almost nowhere that isn't affected. The city of Houston, we've learned, is is enormous. It stretches out over 600 square miles, and then there's a sort of a urban sprawl behind all of that. How much has that sprawl been a factor in what has happened in Houston? I think it's been a key part of it. And, and actually, the, the politics behind this flooding is, has been obscured by the, you know, the human story. And there's you know, obvious reasons for that. But I think for anyone who wants to understand why it has been so bad, I think they need to try to, they need to understand how development has made things worse. 
Going back at least to the 1930s, Houston has been a flood zone. Everyone has known that. All the scientists, all the engineers, all the city developers, it was obvious to everyone. They had catastrophic floods in the 1930s and 1940s. There's been a big battle back and forth between developers and city fathers versus engineers, flood specialists, and scientists over the need to prevent development in key flood zones and grasslands. And almost always, the scientists and the engineers and the people who really know about how flooding works have lost that battle. Developers have continued to develop in places where they really need to keep grasslands because grasslands are the the key sponges for massive rains. And so what we've seen is the the paving over of huge floodplains. Uh, And we're talking about freshwater floodplains. Uh, The Katy Prairie is a great example. It's a huge area west of the center of Houston, much of which has been paved over. And your listeners may be watching about catastrophic flooding near the Attics and Barker Reservoirs. Well, so many of the people who've been forced out of their homes, who've had to be rescued, who've had all their possessions destroyed, they live in subdivisions that uh, people warned against developing those subdivisions. Scientists said you better not develop there because that's prone to flooding. So that's one thing to remember. The other thing to remember is that going back decades, all of the specialists, the flood specialists, they have designated areas that are flood zones and areas that are not. Now, what everyone has been operating on over the last 10 years is the assumption about flood zones that are no longer uh, applicable. Areas that flooded and uh, uh, what are called the tax day floods, spring of 2016, which was considered a 100-year catastrophic flood. There were the Memorial Day floods of spring of 2015, which were also considered a 100-year flood. There was a catastrophic flooding from uh, Tropical Storm Allison in the summer of 2001, which was considered catastrophic, unprecedented. And then there's been several other floods that have been enormous. So many of those floods, especially the tax day floods of last year and then the floods of the year before, areas were catastrophically flooded that had never been flooded before. It stumped all the people who expected flooding in other areas. And so what's happening is you're having storms that are bringing in much more water than ever before, and they're flooding areas that are never flooded before. So really, they need to completely rework what are considered 100-year and 500-year flood zones, because now, by that definition, we're getting a 500-year flood every year. Let's talk about the news coverage and how this is being understood in Houston and around the country and around the world. Our colleague Naomi Klein, Nation Magazine columnist, of course, has been writing about Hurricane Harvey. She says, we hear lots of talk about how unprecedented this kind of rainfall is, how no one saw it coming, so no one could adequately prepare. My question for you is, how much did you hear down there about why why there have been these kind of unprecedented record-breaking weather events now with such regularity. Is there much talk about climate change in Houston? Houston, I know, is a Democratic city in a deeply Republican state. Is there any talk about climate change? Well, I have to say I haven't been scouring all the different news. I've sort of zoned in on a couple of the, the local stations that have been... There's one station here, KPRC-TV, Channel 2. It's the NBC affiliate. They have been really good about informing people about which areas are flooding, about uh, their two chief meteorologists are real experts. They're they're fantastic. Their explanations are wonderful. They're giving people up-to-the-date news, what I call expert service journalism. 
But what I haven't seen on KPRC or the other stations that I've looked at is deeper explanations about why we're getting these so-called unprecedented catastrophic floods now seemingly every year or almost every year. There was one question to one of the flood control experts who was talking about uh, the potential for spillage, for uncontrolled spillage in the reservoirs. And the questioner at the news conference said, well, all these people who are in grave danger, isn't it true that they shouldn't have built those developments there because that's prone to flooding? And the guy sort of dodged it. You could tell he didn't, he didn't want to talk about anything about deeper politics. You know? And that's sort of what I've seen. They're very good about telling people where the weather patterns are going, who's getting the flooding worse, who needs help, uh, what's expected to happen. But they're not discussing the deeper politics. And Naomi is right about this. I mean, after Katrina, after Superstorm Sandy, after Harvey, we have to understand that these kinds of storms, we, this is the new normal. This is not unprecedented anymore. We have to start thinking about we're going to get these massive storms repeatedly because climate change tells us all the climatologists are in agreement when these storms develop, as they always have for millennia, as these storms develop, they're going to bring more water. They're going to bring more moisture, and they're going to be more powerful because the water is warmer than it was before. There's more moisture. And that's what's happened with Harvey. You know, the Harvey, the, the power of the hurricane dissipated very quickly. The real catastrophe was that it sat on top of the city, of the city and just brought staggering amounts of rain, more rain than anyone had ever conceived, even more than uh, Tropical Storm Allison in 2001. Yeah, let me underline what you said about the warmer weather makes rainfalls uh, worse. The Gulf of Mexico in particular is warmer this past year than it has ever been in recorded history. When the Gulf of Mexico is warmer, more of the ocean water evaporates, forms storm clouds, and we get these huge storms. It seems like we're not going to be able to cool off the Gulf of Mexico off Houston. Now Trump has pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. So where do we go from here if we're going to take uh, the action that we need to take? Well, that's a good question. You know, our, our country is now led by somebody who's in complete denial about climate change. And one of the major parties, the Republicans, are also in complete denial about climate change. And uh, that's going to cause more misery and more catastrophe because these storms are going to keep coming. I think really politically, given the, the you know, logjam in the executive branch and in the Republican Party, it's going to take local activists. One thing that I found out about Houston is that even as far back as the 1990s, one of the areas near the reservoirs that had had floods, very bad floods, as, far, as long ago as the 80s and 90s, they formed a local action group to prevent further development because they knew that it would be disastrous. And they clamored and they fought against the city and county officials trying to prevent further development so that they could keep the floodplains as grasslands, which are crucial sponges for, for floods. And they lost that battle. I mean, it's really the greed of development. Developers and who, you know, obviously they, they pay the campaign funds for the politicians who want to build, who want to approve developers. So this has been a back and forth war in Houston for at least 25 years probably longer. And we're going to have that on the local level. So I think people need to work on several levels. They need to work on the local level. They need to fight city and county officials, even as these floods are happening. You know, they have to band together and say, well, we were, we were forced out of our homes because of stupid development, of unnecessary greed development, and we have to stop this. And we also have to talk about ways to mitigate further damage from storms. You know, in Houston, it means 
figuring out ways to protect the ship channel, to protect Galveston Bay, to uh, build wider uh, drainage systems around all of the bayous and reservoirs, to build more reservoirs, to deepen the reservoirs, perhaps for damaged homes. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of damaged homes from Hurricane Harvey. An intelligent city and county political system would think about buying up those homes, compensating the owners, and in some cases, letting them return to grassland. Houston is is best known for its oil refineries. In fact, it's where the Keystone Pipeline is supposed to end. They want to bring Alberta crude all the way to Houston to refine it there. There's a kind of a cruel irony in, in the hurricane hitting the center of the American oil refining industry because, of course, no industry has done more to increase the temperature of the world uh, than, than the oil and gas industry. Well, I think your phrase cruel irony fits it perfectly because on the one hand, the oil and petrochemical industry is the major lifeblood of Houston's economy. Uh, It has brought tens of thousands of jobs here. Uh, So many people who work here are dependent on it, but that is exactly what's causing, it's the chief cause of climate change. People don't really want to question it, but I don't know, Houston is in a bind um, because we have to move to renewable fuels. We have to get rid of oil and, you know, oil and gas. And, you know, I don't know how it's going to affect Houston, honestly. So, of course, we think of Katrina and New Orleans and the response to the disaster there. I wonder if you have any reflections on the the differences and maybe even the similarities between the the post-hurricane development of, of New Orleans and, and what may happen in Houston. You know, there were a lot of the, like, really interesting, dicey discussions about New Orleans. There were two camps in the progressive camp, you know, one who said, we have to rebuild back these communities, you know, especially the Ninth Ward, you know, chasing out these people. There was, you know, there was real fear of racialized yeah. uh, de-development, right? Yeah. But then on the other hand, there were very progressive people who said, not just the Lower Ninth Ward or what was called New Orleans East, uh, and also Lakeview, which was very, very wealthy and almost all white. You know, all those got destroyed. There were a lot of progressive people who said, look, there's been development in many parts of New Orleans that scientifically or hydrologically, whatever you want to call it, you know, environmentally is unwise. You know, these are very, very, very low land. And if levees you know, they're, they're this close always to catastrophe because they're under sea level. I never really saw a very comfortable resolution with that because you have two sort of progressive ideals butting up against each other. And I could see something like that happening with Houston, you know, where really, if you want to be honest about the need to protect floodplain uh, and, and the fact that certain areas have been developed, which really should not be, then what you would really talk about is not rebuilding certain areas. But then when once you do that, you know, you're talking about thousands of people. Okay, where are those people going to live? They want to go back to their homes. If their homes have been destroyed, they want them rebuilt. Um, that's a complicated question, and, and honestly, I don't know how much I can add to that at this point, but I could see maybe echoes of that post-Katrina conversation happening in Houston. Of course, knowing Houston politics, I can imagine that any anything resisting uh, redevelopment will be just bulldozed because Houston is just completely controlled by developers. You know, there's no real counter. The counter forces are so much weaker, or at least they have been so far. Roan Carey, the nation's managing editor, is reporting live from flood-ravaged Houston. Roan, thanks so much for talking with us today. Great talking to you, John. Take care. 
We've worried here for months about how Trump could use the pardon power the Constitution gives the president. Last Friday night, as Hurricane Harvey filled the news media, Trump issued his first pardon for Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Presidents can pardon pretty much anybody. Trump himself pointed out that Bill Clinton had pardoned Mark Rich, a big donor, and Obama had pardoned Chelsea Manning. Was this pardon by Trump any different? For comment, we turn to Erwin Chemerinsky. He's the new dean of the law school at Berkeley. He's the author of 10 books, most recently, Closing the Courthouse Doors, How Your Constitutional Rights Became Unenforceable, and also Free Speech on Campus. His op-eds appear in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, and other places. And he frequently argues appellate cases, including in the United States Supreme Court. Erwin Chemerinsky, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, let's just review briefly what Sheriff Joe Arpaio did. For more than 20 years, his officers terrorized Latinos in southern Arizona. They ran sweeps of Latino neighborhoods, arresting people on spurious charges, abusing and humiliating others. Many of those who were arrested were sent to his tent city, which Arpaio himself proudly called a concentration camp, where they lived under brutal conditions. Finally, the United States Department of Justice charged him with racial profiling, Please pick up the story. What happened then? In 2011, the Justice Department issued a report saying that his office engaged in a pattern or practice of unconstitutional policing. For example, it found that one-fifth of the stops of Latino drivers were done without probable cause or reasonable suspicion. In fact, the report said that Arpaio's office treated every Latino as if he or she was illegal in the United States. It was actually a civil suit brought against the sheriff, not an action by the Justice Department, that came before a federal judge, a Republican appointee, and it was Judge G. Murray Snow, and he issued an order prohibiting Arpaio and the sheriff's department from continuing to engage in racial profiling. Arpaio was openly defiant. Snow held a hearing and found that Arpaio had violated the court's orders. There was another hearing, and Snow ruled that Arpaio willfully violated the court's orders, and he found cause to have a hearing as to whether or not Arpaio should be tried for criminal contempt of court. In accord with federal court proceedings, he didn't preside over that. It was assigned to another federal court judge, Susan Bolton, and she convicted Arpaio of criminal contempt for, quote, flagrant disregard of Judge Snow's 2011 court order that Arpaio ceased racial profiling. Sentencing was scheduled for this October. So the Constitution gives presidents the pardon to power anybody. President Trump blasted critics of this decision to pardon Sheriff Joe. Trump noted that, as I said, Bill Clinton had pardoned Mark Rich, who had been convicted on 65 counts of tax evasion, but had given hundreds of thousands of dollars to Bill and Hillary Clinton. Trump also pointed out that Obama pardoned Chelsea Manning, who was convicted of violating the Espionage Act after releasing hundreds of thousands of documents to WikiLeaks. Is Trump right that these pardons by Clinton and Obama are no different from his own pardon of Sheriff Joe? Well, constitutionally, President Trump has the power to issue this pardon. But I really think that this is different. This isn't a situation where somebody is being pardoned for violating a federal criminal statute. Instead, what this is, is a pardon for violating a judicial order. 
when the president issues a pardon for criminal contempt of court, he's interfering with the ability of another branch of government, the judiciary, to perform its constitutional duties, a basic principle of constitutional law and separation of powers, often reaffirmed by the Supreme Court, is that one branch of government cannot interfere with the ability of another branch to carry out its constitutional responsibilities. As I understand it, let me just paraphrase this. Arpaio was convicted of violating an injunction that ordered him to stop violating the constitutional rights of Latinos, Latinos' right to liberty, basically, in this case. If the president can employ the pardon power to circumvent or nullify constitutional protections of liberty, what's left of the constitutional checks on presidential power? I think you're right, and I'll start where you did. I find it deeply disturbing that President Trump would say that Sheriff Arpaio was convicted for, quote, doing his job. Yeah. The job of a sheriff is to uphold the law, not to violate the Constitution and judicial orders. Frankly, I fear that President Trump is sending a message to police who violate rights and to those in his administration or under investigation by Special Counsel Robert Mueller that he'll use the pardon power to protect them. I'll then go to where you concluded. The stakes here are enormous. Can a president who's so openly contemptuous of the courts undermine their power to enforce the orders? If so, what's really left of the rule of law? The most famous presidential pardon of all, in all of American history, was Gerald Ford pardoning Richard Nixon after he resigned as president. Is the Trump pardon of Sheriff Joe more like that? I think each of the pardons you mentioned is quite different. Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon to try to heal the country. Yeah. Watergate had so obsessed the nation, Ford felt that nothing would be gained by a trial and conviction of Nixon. I think President Clinton's pardon of Rich was outrageous. It was as if somebody had purchased the pardon, and we should be critical of the president using it. President Obama's pardon of Chelsea Manning was also quite different. It was a situation where what Chelsea Manning did really had an enormous benefit for the public interest in learning of the unconstitutional illegal surveillance. The sentence that Chelsea Manning received was so out of proportion to the circumstances. But all of those were pardons for violating federal statutes. None of them like this was a pardon for violating a judicial order. Now, I want to be clear on something I haven't said. In 1925, in a case called Ex Party Grossman, the Supreme Court said the president can issue pardons for criminal contempt of court. So President Trump had the legal authority to do this. I just think the Grossman case was wrong. The Justice Department has an office of the pardon attorney where normally people who are seeking pardons apply, and it's a long, complicated application. We've learned a lot about it in the last uh, week. The application says the following, quote, a presidential pardon is ordinarily a sign of forgiveness. A pardon is not a sign of vindication and does not connote or establish innocence, close quote. And that in fact, was Gerald Ford's position on Nixon. Uh, He was not vindicating Nixon. He was not saying Nixon had been punished for doing his job. Trump is really saying the opposite of what the Justice Department describes as the function of the pardon. You're right, of course, but it's important to remember here that President Trump didn't go through the Justice Department procedures for processing requests for pardons. Also, in this instance, the Justice Department was actually prosecuting Arpaio for contempt of court, 
We now have reason to believe that President Trump went to the Attorney General Jeff Sessions to try to get that prosecution stopped. Sessions rebuffed that request, and then President Trump issued his pardon. So this is an extraordinary pardon procedurally, as well as in terms of the message that it's conveying. So as you have suggested, the implications of this are are ominous. Trump, I guess, could pardon his sons and his son-in-law for any crimes that the Justice Department special counsel, Robert Mueller, might be investigating. What would happen then? If just speculating here, would that stop the investigations completely? Would would Robert Mueller have to close up his office if Trump issued pardons before the uh, before any charges were brought and before the investigations were completed? The president has the authority to pardon anyone accused or convicted of a crime. President Trump, in theory, could pardon everyone under investigation by Robert Mueller, and that would effectively and the investigation. There'd be no possibility of a criminal prosecution. The response would have to be a political one. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in the law to limit the president's ability to pardon. I, I think it would be appropriate if, again, in this hypothetical situation, the Office of the Special Counsel could issue a, re a report, could publish its findings and the evidence that it had gathered. That would not be prevented by a pardon of the people it was investigating, would it? That wouldn't be prevented by a pardon. Now, whether they would choose to do so, we can't know at this stage. They exist to investigate the possibility of bringing criminal charges. What would they do if no criminal charges were possible? There's no way to know. Of course, there are the proceedings of the House and Senate, the Judiciary Committees and the Intelligence Committees, which are also interested in the same, some of the, at least some of the same information that the special counsel is gathering. So uh, there is a separate uh, route to finding out information about uh, uh, criminal conduct of uh, the president and other government officials. Of course, the House and the Senate can conduct investigations. They have subpoena power. The difficulty, of course, is that the House and the Senate are controlled by Republicans. And how much the Republicans are going to want to aggressively investigate, even an unpopular, renegade Republican president, is uncertain at this point. The benefit of a special prosecutor is Robert Mueller is truly independent. Any uh, concluding thoughts about the pardon of Joe Arpaio? I think it's important to emphasize that under current constitutional law, President Trump had the authority to issue this pardon. But I think it's an unwise pardon, outrageous under the circumstances. It raises huge questions with regard to the rule of law. And my hope is that the Supreme Court would reconsider its 1925 decision, ex parte Grossman. Principles of separation of powers are so much more developed now, so much clearer now that one branch of government can't interfere with the function of another branch of government. And the pardon power for criminal contempt very much does interfere with the function of the judiciary, undercutting the authority of courts to enforce their orders. And how would such a case come before the court? Who would be the plaintiffs? Well, it's difficult to know because who would have standing to challenge it? I mean, yeah. in theory, Judge Susan Bolton, this assigned to, could say, notwithstanding a pardon and notwithstanding ex parte Grossman, she believes the law has changed sufficiently that she can go ahead and sentence Arpaio. Arpaio would appeal. In theory, the Ninth Circuit could then affirm Judge Bolton 
and then it would go to the Supreme Court. I don't foresee any of that happening, but that would be the vehicle that I could imagine they provide a basis for getting it back before the Supreme Court. Erwin Chemerinsky, he's the new dean of the Berkeley Law School. Erwin, thanks so much for talking with us today. Always such a pleasure. Now it's time for our update on the Russia investigations. What if you wanted to discredit the idea that Russians connected to Putin hacked the Democratic National Committee last year and sent what they got to WikiLeaks to help Trump? If you wanted to discredit that, you'd need a counter theory, right? For a look at the leading Republican counter theory, we turn once again to Bob Dreyfus. He's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, where he now writes a weekly column on the Russia investigations. He's also a regular contributor to Rolling Stone. He's written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, Slate, Salon. Bob Dreyfus, welcome back. Thanks very much. Well, let's talk about the counter theory. If it wasn't the Russians who hacked the DNC, who did send those documents to WikiLeaks? I think most people accept that the Russians were responsible, and and certainly that's the conclusion of the U.S. intelligence community. And, you know, even the president himself, Trump, when, when pressed, says, yeah, okay, the Russians did it. Uh, his own intelligence chiefs agree, too, that the Russians did it. But the main kind of counter theory to this is that it wasn't a hack at all. In other words, nobody broke into the DNC's system, that it was a leak, that somebody on the inside plugged one of those thumb drives into their computer and downloaded, stored a whole bunch of data, emails, and so forth, and then pocketed it and walked out. Of course, I have to say, none of this theory is based on even a a shred of evidence, nor do any of the investigators think it has any any weight. But the theory centers on the unfortunate murder of a young Democratic National Committee staffer uh, more than a year ago. His name was Seth Rich, and he was shot twice in the back in what the police suspect was a, a robbery gone wrong. Uh, he was killed just, uh, you know, not far from his home at uh, it, very late or early morning on July 10th of 2016. Um, but like any murder, like the Kennedy assassination or the Lincoln assassination or you name it, conspiracy theories started to spread, one being that Seth Rich stole the information and then was killed by somebody, by the Democrats, by Hillary Clinton's thugs or something, in order to, you know, prevent any further information from getting out, a retaliation, or or maybe he was killed by the Russians, or who knows. And it's fascinating to focus on where this started. I, I understand from your new column at The Nation that the beginning of these Seth Rich conspiracy theories wasn't at Fox News or even at Breitbart or Drudge. It really started with Julian Assange. Within a few days of the murder last July, it was kind of bubbling up here and there on some of the real uh, obscure right-wing you know, websites and blogs and Twitter and so forth. I mean, it, but it didn't really have any kind of traction. No one was really taking it seriously, but 
A couple of weeks afterwards, in, in August, Julian Assange, who is the founder and head of the WikiLeaks organization, was giving an interview, and he was asked, well, gosh, this information now has been released by you guys. Are you sitting on any more? And he said, no, I'm not. You know, people go to great risk to get this information. And he brought up Seth Rich murdered in Washington just two weeks ago. And the interviewer said, well, wasn't that just a robbery? And he said, no. And the interviewer kept pressing him, well, what what do you mean? Why are you bringing this up? Was he one of your sources? And again and again, Assange said, you know, well, look, I'm just suggesting that, you know, people who give us information uh, take risks and the stakes are very high in the United States and so forth. So following that, the conspiracy stuff started to take off. And in fact, a couple days later, WikiLeaks offered a $20,000 reward for information about Rich's murder. And so it really started taking off from there. And and that's when it went viral, when various Trump allies started picking it up. People like Roger Stone started hammering away at this on Twitter and else other, other places. Let me interrupt here. I just want to emphasize that what Julian Assange suggested is completely against WikiLeaks policy. WikiLeaks policy is very clear that their sources are guaranteed complete anonymity by the WikiLeaks submission process. If you look at the WikiLeaks submission website, which I'm sure gets you on the NSA's list, it says WikiLeaks records no source identifying information. We keep no records as to where you uploaded from, your time zone, your browser, or even as to when your submission was made. The whole point is that WikiLeaks does not know the source of their information and thus no court on earth can force them to reveal you if you are the source. So to imply that he knows who the source was of the leaks and that it was Seth Rich is uh, completely inconsistent with everything, uh, everything that is the official policy of WikiLeaks. Well, not only that, but but by that time, the U.S. government, the President Obama administration, was already on to the Russian trail. Yeah. And so it seems to me that that Assange was trying to throw the investigators and, and more importantly, the public off of this trail and to, and to point to the DNC itself as the source of these of these leaks. Tell us a little bit more about Roger Stone's uh, tweets about this, which are pretty remarkable and sort of give some flavor to what was going on on the far right. Yeah, well, you know, Stone is a is a bomb thrower. He's a, kind of a giddily provocative person who who likes to push every envelope he can push. And I don't even know if he believes a tenth of some of the things he says. But but he jumped on this. Um, remember, by the way, that. Stone is is a old friend of Donald Trump's. He was a business partner at Black Manafort Stone and Kelly, the lobbying law firm uh, with Paul Manafort, who now is all wrapped up in this uh, Trump question about Russia. He tweeted, uh, Stone tweeted uh, a picture of Seth Rich himself and three other individuals. And he said, the the tweet read, four more dead bodies in Clinton's wake. Coincidence? I think not. (sighs) 
and and it it hearkened back to the theories that circulated during the nineties. Uh, during all that Arkansas project that the Mellons had launched and everything that that the Clintons had murdered many of their opponents, uh, you remember most famously the stories from the 1990s that Vince Foster, who'd been a law partner of Hillary Clinton's in Little Rock, uh, who committed suicide, that he was murdered by Clinton, that that he by you know, he was having an affair with Hillary. He, well, anyway, the, it all was nonsense. But Stone was sort of bringing back this notion that the, the Clintons, you know, will kill you if you cross them. And Stone's tweet, politics. Stone's tweet claimed that Seth Rich was, quote, on his way to meet with the FBI to discuss election fraud when he was murdered. Uh, where did he get that idea? Well, as far as I know, he, he, he just made it up. I mean, it might have been somebody who tweeted before him, but but none of that's true. Now, there's um, a, it's a big step from, from Roger Stone to Fox News. Fox News really commands a massive audience, and the timing of the Fox News report about this conspiracy theory of Seth Rich's murder, the timing of this is highly significant. Uh, fill us in on when Fox aired what they called their exclusive report. Well, apparently they started working on it in April. Uh, that was at the time that FBI Director James Comey had uh, already announced uh, just a few weeks before that that the FBI was investigating possible collusion between Trump and Russia. In early May, Trump fired Comey. That's, of course, what triggered charges of obstruction of justice, and it led to the appointment of Robert Mueller, the, the special counsel. But right in the middle of all that, just a, about a week, I guess, after uh, Comey was fired, the Fox, uh, a Fox story came out, uh, I think, May 16th of this year saying that inside sources, FBI people, had claimed to Fox that uh, Seth Rich was in contact with WikiLeaks and that, that in fact, it was a, a leak and not a hack, and therefore that the whole house of cards, they would say, of the Mueller investigation would come crashing down because obviously the Russians weren't involved. This story was broadcast on Fox. It was picked up in a big, big way by Sean Hannity, who devoted several segments to it during the middle of May. But the whole thing blew up in their faces. And within a few days, Fox had to retract the story. Point blank, they deleted it from their website. It's no longer available on their, on their archives. And they apologized for failing to pursue their proper editorial standards and so forth and so on. So they they withdrew the story, and that sort of put a stake through the heart of this particular nonsensical conspiracy theory. Bob Dreyfus, his latest column on the Russia investigations is titled Seth Rich, Conspiracy Theorists, and Russiagate Truthers. You can read it now at thenation.com. Bob, thanks so much for talking with us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about the rally supporting Colin Kaepernick, where several thousands of people demonstrated outside NFL headquarters on Park Avenue in New York City. Dave himself gave a speech there. You can hear it on this week's edition of the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano, with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.